agriculture in Maine has always been different and special and unique, and it continues to be. So there are a lot of promising trends in agriculture in Maine compared to the rest of the U.S. But the reality is that it is really hard to be a beginning farmer. Going back to the land to make your living growing things. A nostalgic, even a romantic image that holds appeal for many. But as Aaron Carter alluded to, being a farmer is hard. Thriving or even making a decent living is no guarantee, even during the best of times. Carter is an assistant professor of marketing at UMaine who helps run the BARD Technical Assistance Program. I'm Ryan Lisnett, and this is the Main Question Podcast. BARD stands for Business, Agriculture, and Rural Development Program. The basic idea is that students in the Maine Business School at UMaine receive special training and skills development to help agricultural producers and processors with things like marketing, price setting, product development, consumer research. The program recently received a $292,000 grant from the Small Business Administration. Farming in Maine has a long, rich history and a set of unique features that make it stand out from the rest of the country. The state has more beginning and younger farmers than the rest of the U.S., more diversified farms, many of which cater to smaller boutique specialty crops or products. It takes talent, diligence, and stamina to grow and produce the products they make. But even the most successful farmers producing wonderful products, cheeses, blueberry jam, can be challenged making the right business decisions. That's where the BARD program can make the difference between success and struggle. The program's first focus was cheesemakers in 2020. This year, they're concentrating on the fiber industry, which has a long history in Maine. In this episode, we talk with Aaron Carter and ask the question, how can sound business practices help Maine farmers succeed? Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Maybe you could just tell us what what is your title here in the Maine Business School and what is your specialty? Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor of marketing in the Maine Business School and my specialty is consumer behavior. So I'm in marketing and I do kind of the psychology, um, social cognitive psychology or behavioral economic side of marketing. Uh, methodologically, that means I tend to do behavioral experiments. So try to, trying to understand how people think when they're in markets and uh, manipulating something about a scenario, seeing how that changes how people behave, and and then writing a paper about it. What is the BARD Technical Assistance Program? Why was it created? What, what's it, what are the goals? Yeah, so the Technical Assistance Program started uh, with myself and Dr. Stephanie Welcomer, who is central to all of this work and unfortunately not here for the interview today. So I want to make sure I mention up top that Stephanie Welcomer's uh, been been critical in all of this and continues to be. Um, It started out of conversations between Stephanie and myself, um, kind of reflecting on the fact that we felt like there was a real gap between um, what we were seeing in a lot of publications coming directly from farmers and smaller scale agricultural producers in the state, um, talking about the kinds of resources that they need, that they feel like they lack, and kind of meeting those resources at the University of Maine. So specifically, again and again and again, we see farmers saying they need help with um, business operations, but more specifically, many, many um, independent research studies show that people are asking for support specifically with marketing. And and so we started thinking about, okay, what are some things that we can do um, as people in a business school to 
begin to address those needs of, of smaller scale, uh, in particular agricultural producers. Maybe you can paint the, the big picture for us, the state of agriculture these days in Maine and beyond, and then maybe drill down to what is very prevalent in Maine is those smaller specialty product farms, more boutique kind of situations. Yeah, agriculture in Maine is a unique beast. It's It looks different here than it does elsewhere in the country. I'm not originally from Maine. I'm from Wyoming myself. Uh, my grandfather had a cattle ranch in South Dakota, and then I grew up in Wyoming and Colorado. And so I grew up as a 4-H and FFA kid kind of out west and seeing what agriculture looks like there. Um, but even as a business undergrad, knew that there was something special going on in Maine. I wrote about Mafka in my undergraduate research thesis because I was really interested in organic and smaller scale agriculture and Maine is really a hotbed for those things. So agriculture in Maine has always been different and special and unique and it continues to be. So there are a lot of promising trends in agriculture in Maine compared to the rest of the U.S. Often when we hear facts and figures like Maine has more beginning farmers than anywhere else in the country, Maine has younger farmers than elsewhere in the country, um, Maine has more diversified farms than elsewhere in the country, those all conjure like really romantic thoughts about like young back to the land families like making a go of it and, and really doing it. And I am as much, if not more, uh, kind of infatuated with the romance of those ideas as, as anyone else. But the reality is that it is really hard to be a beginning farmer. It is really difficult to be a younger farmer. It's hard to start any kind of business. Um, I think that being a startup in the agricultural space is one of the most difficult places to try and be a startup. Um, particularly when you are small in an industry that, for the most part, is focused on telling people that what they produce is a commodity. I don't know any other industry where if you say, I'm creating a startup in XYZ, where people immediately assume that what you produce is exactly the same as what anyone else who produces a thing by that name is producing. A tomato is a tomato is a tomato. Corn is corn is corn. Wool is wool is wool. If you tell me that you're starting a startup in some other industry, um, I immediately start thinking about like, oh, okay, well, what makes you unique? And so the, the deck is kind of stacked against beginning farmers, I think, in a really unique way that makes it uh, challenging and, and therefore um, interesting and I think rewarding to try and research. Any uh, theories as to why Maine has all these unique aspects to its farming um, situation? Long-standing history, the land itself, um, the land itself lends to a really different form of agriculture. And it's also land access is a really challenging problem for anyone. Um, land is still more affordable in Maine than it is in a lot of other places. So not to say that it's not challenging to get access to land without a lot of access to capital, but a little bit easier in Maine than it might be elsewhere. And so people move here both for kind of the romance and the history of it and the fact that um, it's more achievable for many people to move to Maine and buy five to ten acres and try and make a go of it than it might be to move to move somewhere else and try and make a go of it. So the students in the program, are they, are they either generally on the business side and want to learn about the agriculture side or vice versa or both? Um, so the first round of the program, they were all business students and uh, our kind of approach to the program was let's take these students who are juniors and seniors in business who've developed this like 
relatively high level understanding of business strategies and practices, put them in interdisciplinary teams, and then have those teams go out and advise specifically on kind of business practices on farm. Um, I don't I don't know what the next round of the program will be. We're certainly open to students from other disciplines. I'm talking to some students in other disciplines, whether that's agriculture or economics or graduate students and other programs that have reached out about whether graduate students could take part. The gap that we're trying to fill is still bringing like really contemporary business research and business advising practices to a small scale farming context. Um, there's a little bit more kind of like catch-up work that students that are not upper division business students have to do in order to be ready to do that work because we have agriculture programs that are great that do a great job of of advising on other things we're very focused on on the kind of business piece of this so i don't know what the next round of the program will be but we're um we're open to it and i hope that we have students from other disciplines that are interested in in kind of studying this gap so aside from farmers learning to run their operations better, how, how will this expertise get out to them? What, what, is the, what are the outreach plans that will get them the knowledge they need to you know, have a better chance at, at success? Yeah, that's really great. So other than farmers who are going to have student teams on farm, uh, so Stephanie and myself have been doing a lot of research directly on farm with farmers for the last, I don't know, six or seven months now. Um, because part of what's really critical about our program and the way that we approach it is we're explicitly studying non-commodity producers. So producers who are um, kind of saying to this challenge of what you produce is the same as what I can get according to like the USDA price sheet that comes out and says, here's what the price of whatever pork or wool or corn is. These are people who are saying, no, actually what I'm doing is something pretty different. That's marketing, right? That in and of itself is marketing and we're trying to help improve that and make people um, feel like they can do a better job of that. So we've been working directly on farm with farmers and collecting data because it's critically important that our students have access to some data to begin the class. And that data for these small farmers largely doesn't exist, right? It's not that we don't spend money studying agriculture and agricultural producers, we do, but we tend to study these really large producers um, whose production metrics and needs are, are relatively well captured by most of the research that's out there. Um, we're filling this gap in a lot of ways for what do these smaller scale producers say that they need and how can we make sure that our students have data on both the producer side and the consumers for those products side that's specific to these non-commodity folks. We kind of have to approach studying these products like they're a fundamentally different thing. So is farmstead artisan main cheese different from the cheese market writ large is a skein of yarn produced from one farm. Sometimes they even know the name of the sheep who produced that yarn and they can tell you the person who sheared it and the person who owned the mill that washed it and then ran it through all of their equipment and then brought it back to the farm. Is that the same thing as yarn that you buy from you know, some large international retailer that came from a amalgamation of a million different sheep in New Zealand or Australia. For some people, it's not. For some people, those are exactly the same thing. For a segment of the market, they're very different. So we're understanding that segment. Um, so how are we going to get all of that information, this like explicitly not commodity approach to understanding these markets? How do we get that back to farmers other than just the few who partner with our target teams? We 
pre-committed ourselves in kind of a risky way actually to publishing all of our formal research results as open access articles, which is not the norm, at least in a business school, it's very much not the norm. Uh, what that means is that so as an academic, part of our research output are these academic articles. That's what we're evaluated on. Most of the time, if you go to download a research article online, which most people don't do because they're not that fun to read for the average person, they're only sometimes fun to read for an academic, but most of the time when you go to download one of those articles, you'll see the little, like, pay $29.99 to read this article from a publisher who actually didn't conduct the research. All they're doing is publishing it. Um, and that's not a barrier if you're a huge multinational corporation or some consulting agency who's working to advise, you know, large farms that are competing in the commodity market. It's a huge barrier if you're a small farmer who's barely scraping together the time to read this research anyway. Um, so we have to, we pre-committed ourselves in the earmark proposal to publishing all of the results open access, which means the average person who goes to read these things does not have to pay anything. We are gonna pay a fee upfront and publish with specific publishers who allow us to have those rights to make sure that the, that the research is open access. Um, we also have collected contact information throughout with all of the farmers in Maine who we've been dealing with um, and will share results directly with folks. And then, there are a lot of, I think, recommendations that our students will come up with that will not be individual farm specific, but will be more kind of industry specific. And we don't know yet because we don't have all the data in and we haven't had our students work on it, but we're very much planning to have um, some conversation around, okay, what would be really useful easy to implement deliverables that we could provide to farmers, whether that's, you know, just like little graphical infographic style things that we can give to farmers and say, hey, if you're looking for things to share on your Instagram or Facebook page, like here's some options. Is it the case that they are producing value-added products so it's not just the milk, it's the artisan cheese or it's the, it's the cranberry compote or what, what have you? Is that what makes them more than growers of commodities? So I think it for a lot of producers it is. We certainly have, um, when we did the cheese year, those were a lot of both farmers who were pr producing milk and then turning that into cheese or occasionally only doing the cheese making and kind of buying their milk in from nearby farms. Um, but those are folks who are engaged in value-added production. But I would say um, from a marketing perspective uh, that there's a real space in the market for even if you're not doing value-added production if you are showing up to the farmer's market and you're saying hey this is a tomato that's an heirloom it's grown organically i know exactly where the compost came from and you kind of like tell a little story to go along with it i still feel like from a consumer perspective you're trying to justify an additional price premium not, it's it's next say, level. Yeah, you're trying to justify an additional price premium and, and suggesting to people this is something different. And there's a subset of the market that's willing to engage with that and say, you know, I'm going to treat this thing that some person might think of as a commodity, you know, almost more like art, which is, um, it's, a, it's a small segment of the market, but it's a pretty under underexplored segment of the market and it's really necessary for a lot of New England producers because we cannot produce things at the same 
level and at the same kind of economies of scale as producers in a lot of other regions. Can you talk about, I guess the first go around with the program was with cheesemakers. So mm-hmm. how did that go? What what were some of the findings or what, share, share with us that experience? Yeah, it was really great. It was delicious. Um, <laughs> we had 12 students who participated in that round and we partnered really closely with the Maine Farmland Trust uh, in the first round of that program. Uh, so Maine Farmland Trust is an incredible organization that does great work helping farmers. And um, one of the things that we were able to do with that program and partnering with them is that they had kind of pre-planned a version of their farming for wholesale, about 98% sure that's correct. It's very close, if not correct. Their farming for wholesale program. Uh, They ran a version of that program that was targeted specifically towards cheesemakers and had their kind of cohort of cheesemakers that were completing the program and allowed us to have ourselves and our students sit in for the entirety of that program. So our students did 21 hours of classroom training in the room with farmers who are trying to do the kind of calculus of how do I change my business if I want to start thinking about bringing on wholesale as an additional distribution channel. Um, We then had students uh, kind of form, well we formed, but put students into these interdisciplinary, um, business interdisciplinary, so it was like a finance and accounting, a management and marketing, um, business interdisciplinary teams partnered with individual farms and go talk to those farmers about, okay, exactly what can we help you with? Because of the nature of the kinds of farms that signed up for this Farming for Wholesale program, all of those farmers were in a very particular space with regards to um, largely thinking about, like, how are we going to manage our product lineup and make pricing and distribution decisions? So all of the final projects that year were kind of in that space about, you know, should we have more SKUs or fewer SKUs, or how should we think about um, scaling up our business. I don't anticipate that um, the individual farms that our students partner with this year are going to be as um, kind of homogenous in terms of the work product that they need. Like some farmers that we're talking to this year are very focused on how could I build up my online presence and others are starting to think about what how should we change our product lineup should we be selling more fleeces directly to hand spinners or should we be selling yarn or should we be looking to sell uh, kind of finished goods so we'll have teams working on um, more uh, varied products this year I I anticipate so that that leads to the next question this year is focusing on fiber makers so which is what you're just talking about what are some of the challenges what are some of the opportunities Uh, the history of this I know they used to take sheep to the islands of Maine for uh, for grazing and such, right? In terms of the history of fiber in New England, it is a really fascinating history. And I thought I had a, a pretty good idea, but even just in prepping more over the last uh, several months, I've, I've learned exactly like how deep that history goes, or I'm learning more all the time about how deep that history goes. Um, at, at one point, it was legislated in Massachusetts, at least I haven't been able to find a similar statute in Maine, that every school child in Massachusetts had to learn to spin wool because it was such a point of tension between the, col- the then colonies in America and later like a fledgling revolutionary state and and Great Britain and so, or England at the time. So it, uh, it's like really deep in our history, this idea of wool and being able to clothe ourselves and being kind of independent. 
um, runs really deep in in New England. You mentioned sheep on on islands, and that still happens on several islands. There's there's incredible stories about um, when colonists arrive and brought sheep and kind of learned like oh wolves wolves like sheep, and our our sheep that we imported here don't don't know how to protect themselves certainly, and we don't really know how to protect them from wolves, and so that's part of the reason why sheep wound up on islands. Um, which wound up making them uh, incredibly vulnerable to then being stolen by by British armies who took that wool, knowing full well that that was critically important for our national security then and to a certain extent now because the largest buyer of American wool is still the U.S. military. Um, so it's, it's really central to our history both as a country and um, I think to kind of what people expect when they live or visit Maine that they'll kind of see, you know, sheep on pastures or sheep on islands. Um, And there are people who are still doing that work, but they're they're largely doing it uh, in a... They're largely doing it and not being paid for it is one of the things that we're finding out increasingly as we go out on farm and, and talk with folks. Uh, a lot of people are not covering their costs, uh, and if they're covering their costs, they're almost certainly not paying themselves. And even if they're paying themselves a little bit for their labor, like there's someone in the house who has the off-farm job that has health insurance, um, and and it's it's really challenging to eke out a living, kind of keeping the romance of fiber alive. So lots of challenges, uh, and and also like a regard for this history. So Maine has a growing business school and obviously a long history um, of agriculture programs. So is this a natural fit here at the University of Maine? And does this program follow any sort of national model or is this a unique thing? I would say uh, there's not a natural fit, but I think that there's a real opportunity. Um, It is challenging to try to bring like all of the stuff that comes with business to a small scale, small scale ag context. And um, one of the things that I found myself saying increasingly when talking to farmers is, you know, I have, I have yet to talk to a person who got into small scale farming because they just really love marketing. They don't, they don't really love marketing. That's why they need help. That's why they need help. Um, But you've got to, if you want to make money, and you want to do so in a way that's really atypical to the rest of the industry, that means you're going to have to be pretty creative with your marketing and you're going to have to spend a lot of time and effort carefully thinking about and kind of measuring and then tweaking your marketing plans. And so um, I think it's really important, but it's it's challenging because to my knowledge, there is not another program in the country that's doing similar work, which is not to say that there are not incredible programs like Cooperative Extension. We have a great Cooperative Extension program at the University of Maine. I'm a huge fan of the work that Cooperative Extension does across the country. I think they're incredible. I think they're one of the best outreach things that public universities provide. I think they often don't have the same kind of approach to thinking about marketing and targeting and branding and positioning that we do in a business school. And I think that we hear again and again from farmers that um, that's a really important unmet need that they have. So that's part of what we're trying to do 
and and yeah, to my knowledge, there's not another program in the country where a business school um, is really partnering explicitly with small scale ag in the same way that we're doing here. Can you talk about the potential in terms of economic development and workforce development? Is there uh, a lot of room to grow? There's a huge amount of room to grow, um, but it does require, I think, hopefully our students being really creative in terms of thinking about how do I develop a career for myself in this space. And certainly we're interested in helping students do that and thinking about how to become technical assistance providers um, for supporting agricultural producers in New England. We know that farmers need help here. We know that we have students that are interested in doing you know, meaningful work where they feel like they're connecting with and reinforcing their communities. And there's a, a real opportunity to do that. And I don't have m- concrete numbers on exactly what that looks like because it's, it's going to require someone to really carve their own path and we're going to try and help them do it. So there's a, a big push by the Department of Agriculture in Maine to, to buy local or buy Maine, I guess. The, uh, the figures are that I saw was um, currently 10%. They want to get to 20% by 2025 and 50% by 2050. How do you get there, and what will Maine's agriculture big picture look like in, over that time span? Yeah, I, I think that it's a really important initiative. There's similar initiatives going on throughout New England. So there's a New England Feeding New England group that's been meeting for for a while, and I've sat in on a few of those meetings. One of the things that I I don't know exactly how we get there, nobody knows exactly how we get there, which is the challenge. So I'll say that up top. But I do think that a really important consideration that we need to have in the back of our mind while we're having these discussions and kind of setting the goals is what do we mean by 20% and what do we mean by 50%? How are we going to set those metrics? And then depending on what metrics um, we set for ourselves, is that going to get us the outcome that we're looking for? So specifically, are we just talking about the amount of money that people are spending? And are we thinking about food that's produced by manufacturers in the same way that we're thinking about food that's produced on main farms? Um, do we actually not mean the amount of money that's spent on food that's produced or manufactured in New England and instead we care more about like the percentage of calories or the like nutrient density of what we're producing in New England and so um, I think getting some clarity on on exactly what we're measuring and then kind of doing the projection forward and thinking about well is that going to lead us to the outcome that we're trying to reach is is important. So finally, just uh, wondering about sustainability. Where does that factor in, in, including climate sustainability? Is that uh, part of, is that wrapped into all of this? Yeah, I think like with anything else that's going on in the world right now, it's like the big gorilla or elephant or whatever, sheep, I suppose I should say. The giant, it's the giant ram in the room. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's more expensive to do most of the things that we're talking about and it's increasingly uncertain how that's going to how that's going to pan out. It's, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, a real opportunity for New England because a lot of the historical and by historical I suppose I mean like the last hundred and fifty years, a lot of the historical um, like major wool and sheep producing areas in our country and throughout the world are facing more severe climate impacts than we are right now. Uh, you know, water shortages are 
critically, a, a really critical issue throughout the Mountain West. Fire is a really important issue in California. I have a small flock of sheep myself, and the whole reason I was able to buy the sheep that I have is because the farmer who I bought them from can't can't afford to keep sheep in California anymore. Like they're just constantly evacuating them because there's fires. They can't irrigate their pastures, so they have to buy all of their hay in. They're feeding hay all summer. The um, the kind of math of how much does it cost to keep each head of sheep has really changed um, out west, and that presents you know somewhat of an opportunity here. Even if costs have also gone up here, we don't face the same kind of fire fire threat um, that they're facing out there. It also provides some real opportunities for things like sheep grazing on solar fields. Sheep work really well at keeping all of the grass down and making sure that those panels can operate as efficiently as possible. Um, so there's opportunities for things like that. And then also using sheep and goats uh, to try to maintain landscapes and reduce fire danger. So that work tends to be happening more out west now, but uh, again, because of climate change, I think we'll start to see more of uh, more of that kind of like concentrated grazing for fire suppression happening here. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I wish we had done this during the cheese phase of this operation, oh, so we could have had so some great. samples. But uh, our go timing is not Maine good. Go buy Maine cheese. Go buy Maine cheese, and then go buy a hat or a blanket or something made with Maine wool because it's wonderful all around. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for checking us out. All of our episodes can be found on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, UMaine's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages, as well as Amazon and Audible. Questions or comments? Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ryan Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.